As we approach the 50th anniversary of the merger of Universalism and Unitarianism, it's appropriate time to be retrospective. At merger, some feared the demise of Universalism. They were outnumbered, what, three to one? They were understandably anxious, but mistaken. That's not what happened. What happened, as I take it, is we ended up with a Unitarian form of polity and a Universalist theology. In 1961, there was no way to know this would happen because it could only happen as the subsequent generations lived out what it meant to be neither Universalist nor Unitarian, but rather Unitarian Universalist. Only recently has the theology been articulated by theologians, but that's because first it had to emerge from our lived experience. So I want to tell you about how I came to know this, my lived experience, how I know it in my heart and realize that there is no more important message. The Apostle Paul, experienced his conversion on the road to Damascus. Mine happened after arriving late in Buffalo, New York. So conversion, conversion, a definitive, sometimes overpowering moment that brings you to embrace religious faith. What does conversion bring to your mind? Does it seem as out of place in a UU environment as an altar call? Is it a little scary? Have you ever heard of a Unitarian Universalist having had a conversion experience? It happens. It happens. Have you had such an experience? Yes. A moment that divides one's life into a before and an after, a moment in which there is a spiritual transformation, a shift in one's inner reality that changes the way he or she views the world. Such a moment once sees me, and I was transformed from a Unitarian into a Universalist. This is how it happened. It was the fall of 1980, so what, 30 years ago, the annual meeting of the New York State Convention of Universalists. Don and I arrived late, slid into a pew, turned our attention to the Reverend Gordon McKeeman, who had already begun delivering the keynote address, The Persistence of Universalism. It was the beginning of our second year of ministry. Donna and I were co-ministers of the First Universalist Church of Rochester, New York, but we didn't know very much about universalism except what we were learning via osmosis from a loving congregation. I mean, of course, I'd studied the basics in theological school. I knew how early, the early church father Origen had argued for universal salvation. How John Murray had found the first meeting house was in 1780, and why some, you know about some, the ultra-universalists were called the death and glory school. 
However, since I'd been raised a Unitarian in Chicago, the Unitarian ethos rather than universalism is what had been bred into me. Or so I thought. So I sat, admiring the stained glass, the carved beams, half looking, half listening, until I heard McKeeman say, universalism came to be called the gospel of God's success, the gospel of the larger hope. Picturesquely spoken, the image was that of the last unrepentant sinner being dragged, screaming and kicking into heaven, unable to resist the power and love of the Almighty. Wow. Wow, what a prosaic, graphic picture. The last sinner being dragged, hauled by his collar, I imagined, into heaven. What kind of God was this? Suddenly, suddenly, what I had learned in seminary and was imbibing from the congregation came together, and I got it. This was a religion of radical, radical and overpowering love. Universal salvation insisted that no matter what we do, God so loves us that she will not and cannot consign even one single human individual to eternal damnation. Universal salvation, the reality that we share a common destiny, is the inescapable consequence of universal love. So, some of you must be wondering, what is this guy talking about? God? I mean, why is he using that language? Why describe that as love? But how else to describe that which created, undergirds, and sustains us? How else do we speak of the idealized parent behind every parent, the archetypal mother and father of us all? Contemporary Unitarian Universalists often dismiss this. After all, most of us, what we don't believe in a personal God, but less in God's love. At most, we'll see, we will see that the divine is synonymous with the natural order and that it works among and through and within us. But ours is not a God who talks to you when you are in doubt, rejoices with you when times are good, or, or carries you through life's trials. Our God is what? More abstract and less personal, more a symbol and less a felt presence, more in our heads and less in our hearts, an idea we argue over rather than an intuition we rely upon. In our understanding, caring is not something that flows from God. As former UUA president Eugene Pickett put it, our purposes and principles describe a process for approaching the religious depth 
but they testify to no intimate acquaintance with the depths themselves. Nonetheless, there's a kind of smug elitism bolstering an attitude among too many Unitarian Universalists who look down on those who believe in God. These sophisticated cynics, Forrester Church has called them, portray God as what? An all-powerful, all-knowing, bearded, white man enthroned up in heaven, and then, of course, dismiss him as make-believe. But I have grown weary, weary of those who scorn. What is God? What is God really? God is the unbegun, the unknowable, the unfathomable, and the ineffable that is as close as your next heartbeat, as ordinary as a mode of dust, and as precious as a newborn. God is the mystery at the core of all things. God is the mask we place over the infinite and the garb we drape over the sacred so that we might enter into relationship with it. For we, we of all the manifestation of this eternally unfolding creation are blessed to awaken to and knowingly witness and savor a miracle, life, life, our lives. And then transmitting and building upon that creation, yes, with our lives, we seek to address that which is beyond naming, the divine mystery that is both parent and partner. We say, our Father, Japanese say Kami. We say Hail Mary and Gaia. We say Jesus. We say Abba. We say Shiva. We say Allah. We say Brahm. One of Elie Wiesel's stories ends with this line. God created man because he loves stories. This is to say what? God is relational. We say it this way because we actually find it more believable when we invert reality. God did not make her in our in her God did not make us in her image. We made her in ours. Why? So that we can identify with and relate to her. So we can address and be spoken to so that we can love and be loved by. That's the way we are built. God, which is how we speak of experience, the mystery, the core of all things, must be relational because we're relational, every one of us. The bond we feel to another human being, which is what we learned First in our mother's arms is the prototype for all our relationships. And the degree that we let the rational tyrannize our faith 
we fail to address this most human need for intimate connection and sense of belonging. Yes, I pray. I pray to the God that dwells within, among, and beyond us. I pray to God for the same reason I write in my diary, talk to a friend, spend a quiet moment in reflection, because what I know of God, I find in communion with myself and with those I love and with the world in which I move and breathe and have my being. I talk with God because I need to relate to that world that is within and beyond me. And I want to experience yes, its realness and its dearness. And you, you abstractions of God simply don't meet my emotional needs or take me into that sacred space. Even, or especially, being as analytical as I am at this moment is to step away from the immediate experience of the divine rather than into it. But a God, but a God that drags the last unrepentant sinner kicking and screaming, no, actually, as I imagine, profanely cursing and resisting into heaven, we can envision, we can admire, we can have feelings about, we can laugh at, it is a personification of the most holy rooted in a powerful, sometimes, yes, overwhelming feeling, an experience that transcends description, a yearning that defies analysis. God, what a relief to feel that ultimately there is nothing, nothing, nothing I can do to alienate myself from God's loving embrace the almighty but tender arms of the creative force that upholds and sustains life. Universalism's insight is that you cannot, never, 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 coerce people into loving one another. The commandments are not threats. If they are not fulfilled, God will not withdraw his love no one has ever drawn true love from another with punishment. God's love is given, freely given to all, and it is a more positive force for good than fear will ever be. Not just stronger than fear, but stronger than death. Love survives and it abides in all of us. All the departed reside in us. Behind this is a very simple truth. In being loved, we learn to love. In being loved, we learn to love. Those who feel another's love, a manifestation of God's infinite love within themselves in turn feel so good about themselves, so connected to others, so connected to life, so full of compassion that they will not be able to help but to spread that love because it will just overflow from them. This was the feeling that captured me, yes, 30 years ago. This is a belief the world needs today as much as ever. 
The image of the sinner being dragged to heaven transformed how I saw the world because it took what was an unconscious early experience of being raised and being loved by a family embedded in a Unitarian community and made that paramount. Henceforth, I could say, I will make mistakes and fail and have. I will do thoughtless, hurtful things and do. I may, be, I may scorn the world. I may be no good and rotten to the core. I may even reject the love that has been offered me. And still, still, I am beloved by the creation that made us all. The gospel of the larger hope is a gospel of conclusion, inclusion that proclaim God's enduring and undaunting love for all. What puzzles me is why that didn't sweep the world. Why, after a boom in the first half of the 19th century, when we had, what, half a million, why, after the boom, then did it collapse? Why is it the afterthought in Unitarian Universalism? Why is Universalism and its proclamation of unconditional, uncompromising, all-embracing, and overpowering divine love more difficult to believe in than the resurrection and the virgin birth? Why is it easier to believe the unbelievable than to believe that we are one human family beloved by God? What we yearn for is unconditional love. Every one of us. But it is contradicted by our experience. Instead, the principal message each and every one of us got over and over and over and over was this. You behave and be loved. You behave and be loved. The implication is those who are good and compliant are loved, all others not. Universalists have some word for this. They call that partialism. In other words, people have taken their own experience of conditional, judgmental, imperfect human love and ascribed it to God, the divine. Today, given the ongoing strife in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, right here, the decades-old conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, as the genocide in Darfur, universalism is as important as ever. The world needs to know that God's love is boundless. But we, we have abandoned the language and retreated from the ancient proclamation, our good news, theism, God talk, offers religious liberals a language to carry into the world, and it's a useful language, and abandoning it exacts a cost because it's the vernacular of ordinary people. 95% of the American people, the Pew Research Center says. So we say God is love, and God loves you as you are, loves you and every member of the human family, and people 
will at least have an inkling of what we mean. The world needs to hear that, needs to hear about this faith that soothes wounded hearts and shapes attitudes, shapes attitudes that embody the spirit of love rather than that of wrath. In the face of what? The neo-tribalism. We need a message that challenges the axis of evil rhetoric, that contradicts the us versus them mentality and proclaims the oneness of the human family. There is only us, beloved by a God who dismissing free will, I know that's hard for you, you use, you heard me correctly, you don't get to decide, and embracing the saintly and the despicable alike, created both Mother Teresa and Saddam Hussein, supported both Obama and McCain, loves both Bush and Bin Laden, and drags Hitler into heaven as well. This is a truth almost too shocking for us to assimilate. But beneath all our diversity, behind all our differences, there is a unity which makes us one and binds us forever together in spite of time and death and the space between the stars. It was to the unrelenting tug of that reality which I know is God that I gladly submitted that long ago day. <laughs>